0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. To you, Lord Christ. One of the scribes came up and heard the Sadducees disputing, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any question. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May
1: the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I want to suggest this morning that you consider writing a poem or a song over the next six months to a year. Don't worry about if it rhymes too much, just write to celebrate the gift of God's Word in Scripture. Talk about how you find God's Word useful in your life. Does it guide? Does it encourage? Does it illuminate? What value would you put on it? Now I also want to suggest you follow a definite structure, 176 couplets or 352 lines. That's why it's going to take some time. Maybe write one couplet every other day for the next year. The first eight couplets should begin with the letter A, the next eight with the letter B, the third eight with the letter C, and so on. I want you to have some freedom. Since we have 26 letters in our alphabet, you can skip four letters. I would suggest that two of them be Q and X. (laughs) I can tell that this is an exciting challenge for you. Maybe even a rewarding discipline. Of course, the composition of Psalm 119 goes like that. It's a long acrostic poem that follows the Hebrew alphabet. It celebrates the wisdom of knowing and living by Israel's Torah. and The Hebrew word Torah describes the foundational writings in your Bible, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We often translate Torah as law, but I think the word instruction gets us a little closer. Torah does instruct us through commandments, precepts, and statutes. But it also teaches through testimonies, through stories and poems about God's faithful love, His mighty acts, and His gracious promises to bless all peoples. According to Psalm 1, the blessed person, the deeply rooted and fruitful one, reflects on Torah day and night. Studying Torah is both a delight and a discipline. Our Psalm today that we chanted just a few minutes ago, sums it up in the opening couplets. Happy are they whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are they who observe his decrees and seek him with all their hearts. That's the delight, wholeheartedly seeking God through his word. But it doesn't exclude some labor on our part. It took hard work to write Psalm 119, and it takes effort, a state of inquiry, to unpack its wealth. The daily office in our Book of Common Prayer spread Psalm 119 out over several days for this reason, I suppose. A careful reading of Psalm 119 requires discipline. Walter Brueggemann points out that first the psalm is deliberately didactic, It reflects the work of a classroom teacher. Its intent is not casual. It wants to instruct the young in the ABCs of Torah obedience. Second, the psalm wants to make a comprehensive statement of the adequacy of a Torah-oriented life. It affirms that Torah will cover every facet of human existence, everything from A to Z. Third, the dramatic intent is to find a form commensurate with a message. The message is that life is reliable and utterly symmetrical when the Torah is honored. And so the psalm provides a literary, pedagogical experience of reliability and utter symmetry. A Torah-ordered life, he concludes, is as safe, predictable, and complete as the movement of the psalm. Safe, predictable, and complete. That's one mood of faith, but faith has other moods when the devil and death and human disobedience come up the works. There are moods of lament and questioning. Where are you, God? How long will this go on? What about your promise? Torah recognizes this. It makes provision for all kinds of contingencies. What happens to hope in a world where a husband dies without leaving offspring to carry on his family name? What happens when people who observe Torah find themselves living under pagan rulers? How can people, even priests, find reconciliation with the God of Israel when they fall short? What kind of deliverer can possibly fulfill God's promises to bless all the nations through his chosen one? The Hebrew scripture inquires into such things. And every answer opens the door to further discussion and debate, forbidding schools arose to take positions on these topics. And Jesus grew up in this world of inquiry. When he disappeared one Passover season in Jerusalem at age 12, his parents found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And Luke tells us, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's kind of like what Thomas More says in Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. God made the angels to show him splendor. He made the animals for innocence and plants for their simplicity. But man, he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. Christian faith does not imply there are thoughts that we should not explore, or questions we should not ask, or subjects that we should not investigate. To have faith in God with all our mind is precisely to believe that nothing we can learn or discover could ever be a threat to belief in God. Following Jesus doesn't mean we have all the answers, of course, but it does mean that we don't have to fear the hard questions. I heard a rabbi comment that Jewish people can disagree strongly with each other all day and at the end of the day get along because they are still all Jews. He then suggested that non-Jewish Christians have a harder time with this because we lack that ethnic bond. But I think part of the wisdom of the Anglican way may be that it identifies itself more by a way of prayer and worship, of word and sacrament than by a whole system of doctrine or an ethnic bond. And it can help free us for a state of inquiry. Of course, ancient Israel, as well as Christians today, have broad standards of faith. Today's reading from Deuteronomy 6 gives us Israel's creed, known as the Shema, a Hebrew word that means to hear or listen. It's a summons declaring that Israel has one God, who must be heard in love with one's whole being and all of life, from generation to generation. And in our Gospel reading, both Jesus and his scribal inquirer subscribe to this creed, and both see it as a key to interpreting all of Torah. Jesus boldly makes another move, though, and he links another commandment to the Shema. He adds that we are to love the neighbor as our own. These two instructions regularly appear in Christian worship alongside our trinitarian gospel creeds. Allegiance to the one God of Israel never stopped Jesus from exploring truth through hard questions or honest answers. In fact in our gospel reading Jesus adds a phrase to the traditional Shema. Did you catch what it was? Deuteronomy 6 says we are to love the Lord our God with our heart soul and our strength but Jesus adds something else he says we are to love God with our mind imagine this little child's prayer at bedtime now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my brain to keep Jesus was saying something along those lines I think he says to love the Lord your God with your mind He affirms the state of inquiry as a part of God's purpose for humanity. Jesus' grasp of reality does not exclude the hard realities of death and diabolical forces and human disobedience. Jesus displays his full humanity when he asks his father to take the cup of suffering and death from him. From the cross he inquires, Why, God, have you forsaken me? Throughout his life Jesus learns while also displaying awesome insight. He grasps also that we are not to know everything. Just before his ascension he tells his disciples it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But he does model and affirm a state of inquiry. Today's Gospel reading finds Jesus in the temple courts during the week that will come culminate with his death and burial and he's interacting with questions about Torah. The questions that are posed to Jesus, as well as his counter question to his, these inquirers didn't arise in a vacuum. They reflect a state of inquiry that had developed over centuries with a variety of discoveries, opinions, and areas for further investigation. The setting for these debates is the court of the magnificent Second Temple in Jerusalem that Herod had expanded and enriched Jerusalem lies off the beaten path to other places that you might go in that part of the world so you didn't go to Jerusalem unless it was your destination but this was Passover season when it drew huge pilgrim crowds and their money from all over the empire to the holy city. In that week, Jesus revealed through word and deed that this house of prayer had become a temple of doom that wouldn't endure much longer. When Roman armies dismantled it a few decades later, the old priesthood and sacrifices were done away. I suspect that many of you have known what it's like to have a church blow apart, or lose a loved leader to death, or retirement, or a move, or apostasy or a scandal. Since we're a fairly new parish, there's a sense in which we are, are all either at the beginning or the middle or the end of some kind of transition, I suppose. Maybe we felt abandoned or disappointed in even more intimate relationships in our life. Or maybe we've discovered a character flaw in someone we admire. We can feel lost and lost And it puts us in a state of inquiry. What should we do? Where should we turn? And that's what Jewish followers of Jesus faced with their new faith and the fading relevance of the Jewish place of worship and its leadership. That's a state of inquiry that our reading from Hebrews helps answer. The first followers of Jesus worshipped in the temple area after his ascension. But when that was no longer possible, they were not to obsess over this tragic turn of events god has something better in mind with jesus and he will stick he will abide jesus has inaugurated a new covenant with his death and resurrection then introduced a new priesthood someone has counted that there are between eighty or ninety priests that served in the temple in jerusalem from aaron to the time of the destruction of the second temple in the early first century Uh, AD. All of these priests were mortal and they were spiritually fragile. And when each one died or failed, they left folks with a sense of loss. They kept dying. I saw a picture uh, a week or so ago in the New York Times of a whole roll of skulls in a monastery on Mount Athos. And it reminded me of 80 or 90 Preschools IN A ROW, AND THE LOSS AND THE MORTALITY THAT EACH OF THEM REPRESENTED. AND THEN A NEW PRIEST COMES, AND YOU HAVE TO GET TO KNOW THEM, AND THEY HAVE TO GET TO KNOW YOU. BUT NOW ALONG COMES JESUS, AND HE RISES AGAIN. Instead of an earthly temple, he enters a sanctuary that's exalted even above the heavens. Following his death, no skulls or bones are found, because his whole body has been genuinely transformed. He serves forever, and he knows you perfectly. He knows what it's like to be you, and you can grow in his grace and knowledge, becoming like him, a kingdom of priests under his rule. He's your great high priest everywhere and always. The Old Testament priests were sometimes extremely corrupt, and even the best of them, like Samuel, had their faults. So they offered sacrifices for their own sins first and then for the sins of others. A state of inquiry might ask how Jesus compares to this. He rates, we are told, as holy blameless and pure. Because of his perfect obedience, Jesus did not require a sin offering for himself. He offered up himself once for all time for the sins of the world, so that we might perpetually receive him, the true bread that comes down from heaven, and the cup of salvation. His permanent priesthood can bring rescue and healing to every aspect of our being, even our unanswered queries. United with him, we can participate in his priestly work toward others. We can intercede. We can help others find the bread of life. We can be vulnerable, understanding, and encouraging. We can grow toward unconditional regard for God with our whole being and for our neighbors as for ourselves. Which takes us back to our gospel reading, where everybody, it seems, is in a state of inquiry and wondering how Jesus will handle it By whose authority do you do these things? Should we heed the Roman IRS and pay taxes to Caesar, or does God come first? When the resurrection happens, who gets the girl, in the case where she was married to seven members of the same family? A crowd of listeners, followers, and pilgrims are all listening, taking notes. And none of these states of inquiry throws Jesus off balance. He responds to them all, often dissolving the wedge issues, slicing the Gordian knots, he exposes false assumptions underlying the questions. We may suspect that the state of the inquirers wasn't always honest, but Jesus responds to them anyway. Jesus can handle your state of inquiry, too, even when it isn't pure. Sometimes he may be the only one Who can handle your state of inquiry? It appears obvious that Jesus answers well, even to an expert in Torah who comes to him with a question and who is listening. Now, People at the time respected these scribal experts, but they are often not really seen as sympathetic characters in the gospel. Mark shows Jesus commending this one, though. The guy wants to know which of the 600-plus commandments in Torah is most important. Is it the prohibition against eating shellfish? Or instructions on preparing the Passover lamb? Or what to do when you touch a dead body? Maybe it's the Sabbath law or the requirement of circumcision? Or is it none of the above? To us, it may seem obvious that loving God and neighbor makes the top of the list. But given the extreme difficulty we have in obeying these top commands, we may find it tempting to skirt around them too and focus on something else, maybe more peripheral. In fact, maybe writing a long acrostic poem about Torah proves easier than living by it. No doubt both writing and doing it require discipline and can bring delight, but we can easily get bogged down with who qualifies as our neighbor, or whether or not we are commanded to love our own selves, Rabbi Augustine says yes. Rabbi Calvin says no. Or whether loving others requires liking them. But Torah just says my neighbor, including the stranger in the includes the stranger in the gate, and most everyone else who comes in my path. No one said it better than John Wesley the neighbor that is not only thy friend, thy kinsman, or thy acquaintance. It's not only the virtuous, the friendly, him that loves thee that prevents or returns thy kindness. Thy neighbor is every child of man, every human creature, every soul which God hath made, not excepting him whom thou hast never seen in the flesh, whom thou knowest not either by face or by name not accepting him who thou knowest to be evil and unthankful, him that still despitefully uses and persecutes thee. Him thou shalt love as thyself. In a state of inquiry, maybe I'm wondering, what if on my pilgrimage to celebrate Passover at the Jerusalem temple, a neighbor's need threatens to interrupt my important journey? What am I to do? This expert in the law gets it right. In this instant, he loves God with his mind and says, yep, these love commands are more important than all the sacrifices and offerings. Even if the temple and the traditional Jewish priesthood come to an end, and they will, I still need to love God with my whole being and love my neighbor. These things mean the most. Right on, Jesus. To which Jesus responds that this acquirer isn't far from living under the rule of God. Recognizing the primacy of love gets us close to the kingdom. But how much closer can we get? How can we get any closer? Jesus is a step ahead of us with an inquiry of his own that forces us to grapple with who he is as Messiah. Sure he's a descendant of David, but in Psalm 110 David calls him Lord. Somehow he's greater than David, and somehow he's even greater than Torah. And toward the conclusion of Mark's Gospel, a Roman soldier sees Jesus hanging on a cross out of faithfulness to God and to us, and he says, surely this is the Son of God. turns out that the path to the kingdom, to God's rule, is seeing who Jesus is, what he's achieved for us on his cross as Lamb of God. Jesus loves God and neighbor, and our life is hidden in him. Love is a united force, and in the final analysis, we don't need so much to be correct in our state of inquiry as we need to be connected to him, the source of all holiness and love through our devotion and worship. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Celebrate, maybe even write a poem about that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.